Um, let's open up our Bibles. Let's get into the Word this morning because time is ticking. And we want to go back into 1 Samuel where, where we have been all these months. We are in the 17th chapter, 1 Samuel 17. And today we will be wrapping up this chapter, this most popular story in the book of 1 Samuel, the story of David and Goliath. This will be the third sermon in this chapter, and today, after today, we'll be moving on into the rest of the story. But this is a story that we have slowed down a bit our pace because we think the author is doing the same thing. He's giving an incredible amount of detail for us to see in full color what God is doing among his people through this David, through this type of Christ, through this champion of God that he raised in very unexpected ways to rescue his people. And how that is pointing for us, that amazing story is reminding us, setting up the scene for the greater David, Jesus, who would be the one, the champion of God who will once and for all conquer death and hell and, and the enemies of God's people, you, you know, the devil himself, and that he would then triumph over all of that and be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world of which we will next week celebrate in full color and glory. So... 1 Samuel 17, we're going to start reading in verse 31. I'm going to uh, take it all the way to the end of the chapter. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you follow along. As always, if you don't own a Bible, the end of our service in the Welcome Corner, we would love to give you a physical Bible. Please, if you don't have your own, we would love to gift you one. So 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 31. This is the Word of the Lord. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, 
ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no a sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from, from Asharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp, and Dave took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out, against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And in this most amazing story, the story that reveals to us how you are the author and the one who has accomplished oh such a great of salvation, that you, through your champion, as seen in David, but perfected in Christ, as the author and perfecter of our faith, oh Lord, we just give you all the glory today. You are indeed worthy of all glory and praise because you, uh, you accomplish for your people what they could not accomplish for themselves. You've always provided a hero, and you provided the ultimate one in Jesus. Oh Father, that everything that we do may always point to that champion, that savior of our souls, that he would be the center of all things, that he would be the center of our lives, that we would rid ourselves of pride and our own um, works righteousness, Lord, but that we would trust 
always exclusively in the righteousness of another, Jesus. That what makes us right before you is not our own doing, but Christ's perfect work. So because of that, we praise you. Because of the blood shed for us, thank you, Jesus, for that perfect sacrifice. Thank you, God, for calling us from eternity past, and you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us to the day of redemption, for being our counselor, for being our comforter, for sanctifying us, transforming us into the likeness of your Son. So, Father, now as your word goes forth, may all who have ears, may they hear. May we hear not with physical ears only, but with spiritual ears and eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Open the eyes of those in this room who are still shut out, who are still in rebellion against you, who still think that they could somehow save themselves, crumble their own, their own kingdoms that they've erected for themselves and leave them stripped with nothing else other than a cry out to Jesus for salvation. So bless your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our story has reached its climax. The shepherd boy, David, who was previously, recently anointed as king through this private ceremony in chapter 16 with the prophet Samuel, Eli, um, Jesse, David's father and his brothers, we have come to the point in the story where David has arrived on the battlefield. If you remember from last week, we saw that because of the providence of God at work through the fears and worry of Jesse, David's father, who was worried about his three sons that were on the front lines of the battlefield, he had asked David to take for them some Cuban sandwiches, I mean some regular sandwiches, um, and some cheese to the commander of the army, and he really wanted to know that they were fed, he wanted to know how they were, as any father would, bring word back from your brothers, I want to hear. And David, in the province of God, through these means, these regular mundane, you know, what everyday fathers would do, uh, David packs his bags, he rides a donkey, he packs up these sandwiches, and in obedience to his father, he makes his way, he leaves everything back home, you know, his sheep, he finds somebody to help care for them in the meantime, and he's on his way to run this errand for his dad, to meet his brothers and to get word from them. And when he arrives, he's, he is anxious to see his brothers because he drops his bags and he goes to the front lines. He's uh, trying to find his brothers to make sure that they're okay, to welcome him and, and to just establish once again, hey guys, it's good to see you. And as he arrives there in the front lines, I mean, the moment is intense. Israel has this war chant going. They're not going to do anything. We know that. They're terrified of the giant of Goliath. No one is moving a muscle towards the valley to fight this man, but they can sure, you know, try to, in their own way, intimidate the Philistines. So they're there with their war chant, and it is here where in this moment when David arrives in the, in the providence of God and how God is working all things out, Goliath is once again, he is walking down into the valley. He has done this for 40 days, twice a day. And this might have been the last time, the 80th time that Goliath walks into this valley to taunt the armies of Israel. 
to question them on why have you come out to draw up for battle, verses 8 and 10 of chapter 17. Am I not a Philistine and you, the servants of Saul? Uh, by the way, where is Saul? He's hiding out out of fear. He told him, choose a man among yourselves. Let him come down and fight me. I'm the embodiment of the power and the strength of the Philistines and the, and the, the gods of the Philistines. Bring out your champion that he would fight with me. And if he kills me, we will serve you the rest of our days. But if I kill him, you will be our servants. And he, he would end every time by saying, I defy the ranks of Israel. He would defy the God of Israel and God's people for 40 days. But this time, David, little David, this teenager who's here, who's just walking, weaving through soldiers to meet his brothers in the line of battle, happens to hear the giant. And we see, verse 23, how the author says, and David heard him. That's a very important moment. Because until now, everyone had heard Goliath, but had heard him in a different way. They had heard him, and, they, and that produced in them fear and terror. They might have even agreed with him. Yeah, what are we doing here? We thought we had a champion in Saul. We established his kingdom because he was the tall, strong-looking, externally one who was fierce and who we need... A, king who could fight our battles and conquer our enemies, and Saul has absolutely failed. So yeah, we don't have a champion. He's hiding out somewhere, and Israel had placed all their hope in this impressive externally warrior king, and it hasn't happened. The armies of Israel are demoralized. They're terrified, and they are fearful. But now there's this young shepherd boy among them who has heard the words of the giant. And the soldiers don't know why he's there. He's, there. he's here to see his brothers. But in the providence of God, I mean, he's there at the right moment. And his thoughts about the giant to the soldiers mean nothing to them. Little did they know that this shepherd boy who has arrived who has heard the words from Goliath is the very one who will turn this war around, who will save, who will be the hero, the champion of God to save his people. And ultimately, in the light of the story that will change the world as David is established as the king of Israel whose descendant would be then Jesus. God's champion, the unexpected savior of his people, would have to hear the defiant words of Goliath in a different way than the rest of the armies of Israel. And therefore, because he hears it from a different vantage point, he needs to respond in a different way. We said last week that finally somebody is interpreting what Goliath is saying and responding to what he's saying in a theological way. Till then, everyone is just self-persevering, just uh, uh, thinking about uh, uh, very earthly ways of how to survive the moment. 
But David is thinking about who his God is, the history of Israel, the promises of God for his people, and now he could relate and respond to the words of this giant through those means. If you remember verse 26, he's asking two questions of all the soldiers who were there. The first one was, what is it that Saul was suggesting that he could give to anyone who dared fight Goliath? Really? Money? One of his daughters? And freedom uh, 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 to have no taxes in Israel and just be freed in your home from that type of oppression from the government? Really, that's the motivation? And the motivation wasn't enough because no one dared. Oh, yeah, I can marry one of his daughters, be on the inside now. I can have a lot of wealth and I'll pay taxes. Well, well, man, surely somebody would say that's enough for me too, but what good is it if you're dead? No, those were not motivations and I, and I think that David was taken back by oh really that's what that's the motivation his second question was the right one because in his indignation he says for who is this verse 26 is uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God oh, oh he saw what no one else saw this uncircumcised Philistine, this pagan worshiper of dead false gods was threatening the only one true God and his people. And when he's asking these questions, the, the other soldiers only answer the first. Like, yep, that's what Saul said. That's the reward. But to the other question of who is this uncircumcised Philistine that, it, that is defying the armies of God, no one said a word. No one said a word except his brother, Eliab, his oldest brother, who chastises him, rejects his word. What are you doing here? Go home, you're just here to cause trouble. You just wanna witness the slaughter. What happened to the sheep back home? Are they even being taken care of? I know your heart, I know the evil within you, meant accusations that David's like, what did I do now? which is evidence that that happened again and again and again. The jealousy in his oldest brother, why? Because he was there when for a split second Samuel thought that he was the next anointed king because he was the externally tall and handsome like Saul. And he later finds out that the one who's been anointed is his younger son, his younger brother, David. So the sibling rivalry is just more than sibling rivalry and jealousy. It is for the very, for the very salvation of God's people. And David, who is now full of the Holy Spirit, he goes past his brothers and he's in the face of the other soldiers. He's like, what are you going to do about this Philistine? What are you going to do about this uncircumcised pagan giant who is defying the Lord? And David causes a ruckus there among the soldiers and he gets called to the, the principal's office, verse 31. That's what it seems like. So all of a sudden, word it came to Saul, and Saul, he sends for him. Those who were hearing him told Saul of his boldness, and, and, and Saul said, bring this young man to me. And David, in his indignation, in his, he, he is offended about what this giant is saying, and how no one is doing anything about it. He takes ownership of it, and he takes a posture that he is the one who needs to fight this giant. 
he comes into this, his chambers and he's agitated and, and, and apparently Saul doesn't really recognize him as David, the one who plays the harp for him to soothe his soul because we know at the end of the passage, he's like, who are you? And then he says, I am the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Maybe at that moment, Saul's like, that's you? And so it was that David enters into his tent and instead of just waiting on Saul and there, there is no evidence that, that David is being reverent and waiting to be instructed. No, no, he's just, he just goes and, and he tells Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. King, your servant, I will go and fight with this Philistine. It's amazing how this young shepherd boy has more courage than the entire army of Israel. And Saul, who is like every single one of us, and like Jesse, and like Samuel, and like, you know, his brother Eliab, and everyone else, looks at David with external human eyes. He says, you are not able, verse 33, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. You play the harp, he probably doesn't know that yet. You tend sheep. Goliath is a man of war, and he's been a man of war since his youth. As a matter of fact, at your age, he is probably twice your size already. And you can see, we can see here the obstacles that David, God's champion, who he's raising to save his people, how, how, how many obstacles he's facing along the way. He is perceived to be too young, Apparently, when Samuel shows up to anoint him, his brother Eliab just chastises him. And now Saul is saying, listen, you are only but a boy. We would think this way as well. We would have responded the same way. Young man, calm down. You are thinking crazy. You can never fight this giant and win. You're not qualified for the task. As a matter of fact, Saul would then speak in such a way that, le that later even the giant would also speak to him. Who are you but a boy? Why have you come to fight me? It's an insult. Everyone is focusing on the external. Everyone is terrified of the appearance of Goliath. And now Saul is looking at David, at his appearance. He's looking at the external, and he says... I see anything but a champion of war. I see anything but the one who could deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. But David is insisting. David isn't saying, well, Saul, um, man, maybe you're right. Uh, maybe I'm being a little bit bold here. Maybe I should reconsider my thoughts. No, David begins to throughout his resume, let me tell you why I could do this. In verse 34, he begins, look, you might think I'm just a shepherd, but look what I've faced. I have faced lions and bears, oh my, and I've taken the lamb that they have captured with their own mouth and I've rescued, I've 
pursued them and removed them from their mouth. And, and even when they have attacked me personally, not one of my sheep, I have caught them by their cheeks and I've wrestled them and struck them and killed them. This is what I've done my whole life. This is nothing more than another beast that I could take care of. And then when we, for a split second, we see David as this humble, young shepherd boy who's living at home. We see the other side of this young man who his whole life has been working out in the fields, who's a fierce, a fierce warrior to defend his sheep. David's a tough kid. He is fearless and he's a protector and he's a warrior. And when it seems like he's being overly confident, man, he's being cocky, like, hey, hey, don't be so assured of yourself. We find out how he understands his abilities to win those battles that no one else witnessed, him and the lion, him and the bear. When no one's around, he would, in his function as shepherd, do so, but he never thought he did it in his own strength, in his own might, in his own wisdom. Look what he says in verse 37. Just when we think he's overly confident. He says, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, I have operated and I have conquered over the enemies of those who I protect because the Lord has granted me that deliverance. Because the Lord has been the one who has won the battles. And it's interesting how David, the arguments that he gives to Saul, I could defeat Goliath because of how God has been faithful in the past. Something that Israel has always forgotten. Israel has always forgotten the story of the Old Testament, every book that we have studied, from Ruth to Joshua to Judges, now in 1 Samuel, every time it is the constant, repeated narrative, the vicious cycle among God's people that they forget the faithfulness of God. They forget that God is their deliverer, that God is their hero, that God is their champion. They didn't need a king. They didn't need Saul. But over and over again, they trip over the same rocks. They handle the same fears and anxiety. They sin against God and pursue other nations and other gods. They do all these things. Why? Because they forget that from the very beginning, from the moment they came out of Egypt, God has been one who has promised to deliver them, and God is one who keeps his promises, that he will save his people from his promises made to Abraham, that God will be all that his people need. And yet his people constantly forget, as we are so prone to forget as well. But David has not forgotten. David is ready to fight the giant because he doesn't see things through external means. Remember, he has the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has come upon him, has emboldened him for this day, and he's not dependent upon his knowledge and his strength, but he's, he ha, he's dependent upon the promises and the faithfulness of God. As one commentator said, speaking of David's words 
to Saul, he says, David's readiness to fight Goliath stemmed from his past experience fighting, but it consisted of his certainty of God's power and willingness to save him against his ungodly foe. Here is David's gospel message for unbelieving Saul. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And do you notice how David, as he's having this conversation with Saul, he's not interested whatsoever in the rewards of Saul, remember? That Saul had offered great riches, that Saul had offered one of his daughters for marriage. He wasn't motivated by earthly gain, by prestige, by status. He was concerned about the glory of God, the fame of God, the honor of God. This is what David is most interested in. He's not concerned about his safety. He's not concerned about his name. He's not concerned about anything else than the glory of God. Can I remind us today that God is always primarily about his glory. You are not the center of God's purposes in the world. The center of God's purposes in the world is God himself, his glory, most manifested through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the perfect and finished work of Christ. God is jealous for his glory, Isaiah 42. He shares his glory with no one. Everything exists to glory. Uh, to glorify him, Psalm, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Even our own salvation serves to bring him honor and glory. If you remember our time in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, where Paul says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And in verse 11 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you were also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God is always primarily after his glory, and David has that clear in his mind. But remember, he's also a shepherd. He's a protector and a defender, and as one who is out to bring honor, glory to God, restore God's rightful place in this circumstance, he cannot by do it by the means by which God has raised him to be this fierce shepherd, protector of God's people. While the armies of Israel, Saul himself, are like scattered sheep who are terrified, who need a shepherd to protect them, God has anointed him to be the shepherd of his people in this moment. Do you see how God is working out in unexpected ways, pointing to the reality that we are sheep, 
who need a shepherd and that ultimately Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Jesus, the one who says, I am the good shepherd of Psalm 23. I am the one who will ultimately come to shepherd and protect and rescue my people. So David has been raised, and David, in this moment, he's speaking with Saul, and he wants to be this. He needs to be. He's called to be this hero, this rescuer, this champion for God's people because he wants to defend the glory of God, restore the fame of God, and he wants to protect God's people. It is burning within him to do this. And it's apparent that Saul is impressed. I think Saul's like, well, he says in verse 37, go and the Lord be with you. Maybe he thought, because remember, Saul is after. If I could get somebody to take care of this situation, because Saul's an opportunist, he's an opportunist for, any, for everything. If, if someone could take care of this giant, if I, if I can incentivize somebody, then this will make me look good. So maybe for a second, he's like, hey, this kid, what if? What if? So then he's like, let me help him. Let me invest in him. Let me prepare him for battle. And he's like, hey, man, it would look pretty good if he's out there wearing my armor. Maybe... Maybe I could share the victory with him. Maybe at the end, if he wins, you know, I could say, hey, hey, that is my champion. I prepared him. We strategized in my intent. I fit my armor on him, and, and there he went. Maybe he could receive some of the credit. And this funny, a comical moment in verses 38 and 39 where Saul, he puts his armor on David Saul's this gigantic man that the Bible tells us that he's a whole head taller than everyone else in Israel. He takes his, his chain mail, he takes his helmet, he gets his sword, he puts it on David, and literally, David could not walk. And I guess David tried to be somewhat you know, cooperative and submissive, this is the king, and then he's like, look, I can't do this. Maybe he thought, I never, all the victories I've had over lions and bears have never come like this. God is the one who fights my battles. God is the one who gives me strength. And so he takes this all off. I'm not, I'm not gonna do it this way. I know that, that conventional wisdom says I need to armor up physically. I'm not going to do it that way because God is the one defending me. God will give me the victory. So he takes his staff, heads down to the river to choose some stones. But interesting just to think about what Saul has done. And I think that in so many, in so many ways, it's what we are always doing. Oh, we always try to fix things through physical external means. We want to put on all types of suits and layers of things that perhaps do not actually do the work. We think we could push back the power of darkness, of unbelief by just changing, tweaking some external thing. 
thinking through human means and human rationales on how things should go down. Okay, if you want to fight, if you want people to be saved, if you want people uh, 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 to know God and be rescued from their sins and know the Savior Jesus, you'll need this, you'll need this, you need this, you need this, you need this. So oftentimes in America, if I can speak for my country, so many times we think, man, salvation would come if we could just seize political power. If we could just get the right side once again. If these Republicans could finally take over and preserve laws that would be in step with the Bible. Now, obviously, there's truth to that. We need to defend life and defend marriage and defend family and yes but listen that's not gonna save your soul those are not the things that save others think that if we just create the right environment if we just have the right personalities up front preaching if we could have the bells and whistles and be attractional and use all the systems of the world to Redeem those so that then people would say, hey, what a cool church. Oh, there I could go and there I could have fun and there, wow, I relate to that. Because, I, because my life is so technologically, so the church that's most technological, wow, has my attention. And so we create all these things and strategize and invest and because we want to see people come to know the Savior, and whether it's just having the right political power or legislations or the right environments or entertainments to want to create uh, movements, all these external ways, all these things that we put on. Others would say, if we just have, if we could just serve enough, if we could just feed enough people who are hungry, if we could just help people believe that they're loved and they're cared for and they're meaningful in society, that their life has worth and that they have a place in this world where they could be affirmed and that's the end goal, to save God's people, to save people, for them to be, you know, you know to know Jesus as Savior, we, we are not doing justice to the gospel itself because no one can be saved through anything external. And if Saul's armor can represent for us the tendency that we have to say, oh, oh you want salvation? Or is somebody saved? Put this on, put this on, and put that on as if in some physical way we could somehow accomplish that. David takes it all off. He takes off all this armor, because he knows this one thing. Only God can save. Only God's spirit can save. Only God's powerful word can save. Only God has delivered me from the bear and the lion. So the spiritual, the battle is spiritual, not physical. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he, he uses the metaphor of armor to describe the spiritual war that we're in. Put on, he says, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take on the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flame darts of the evil one. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times of the spirit with all prayers and supplications. It's a spiritual war because it is only God who can save. So we can't act like Saul. We have to look to David, his example. And what does he do? He takes off the armor. He goes down to the brook that's in the middle of the Valley of Elah. And he grabs these five stones. He puts them in his pouch. And he goes, verse 40, he then approaches the Philistine. Eventually, as the Philistine sees him, he thinks like Saul thinks, but from his Philistine way, from being Goliath, he says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, you come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He wasn't intimidated by David at all. But then look at the words of David. Wow. He tells Goliath, exactly what he's going to do. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, David tells him, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, then I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. He gave him the playbook. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. For any basketball fans here, if you know anything about Larry Bird, the greatest trash talker ever, he was known for being a guy who would tell the other team, here's exactly what I'm going to do. He would, he would tell them, I'm going to get a pass right by so-and-so, and I'm going to pass the ball over here, and then, he's, and then he's going to pass it back, and I'm going to be in that corner, and I'm going to hit a three, and I'm going to win the game. He did this over and over again to opponents. And at the end, when it would happen, he would look at them and laugh. I told you so. This is Larry Bird, David. He's telling, he's telling Goliath, but here's exactly what I'm going to do to you. And you can't just but say, wow, what confidence and what bravery from David. We have to ask the question, for what purpose? Why has God raised this unexpected champion who is perceived to look weak, but that God is used to demonstrate his strength? Verse 46 is the very reason for all of this. It's very, if you have to pick one verse to say this is what this chapter is all about, what this book is all about, in fact, ultimately, in Old Testament language, what this Bible is all about, 
is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that this assembly, Israel and all who are present, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. No external Goliath with all the spears and the javelins and the armor. No Philistine army. None of that. None of that ultimately will save. It is the Lord. None of that is impressive. The only one who saves is the Lord. For the battle is his. So that God will be glorified. Do you see how it's all about God's glory? David knows this. And in verse 48, he runs towards Goliath. He runs towards him. And just like he did with the lion and the bear, he reaches into his satchel. He he takes out one of those smooth, round stones. He puts it into his sling and starts to twirl that thing. Shepherds in this day one of their weapons of choice was a sling. And if you do a little bit of research on that, you find that they were expert rock throwers through their slings. They were able to, with great precision, hit their targets. And it would get so much speed that estimated that they could throw a stone about 120 miles an hour. So there is David He's turning the sling, and he lets it go at the right moment. And Goliath, who is fully armored, helmet and all, with great precision, he hits Goliath right between the eyes and his forehead. And talk about the author of 1 Samuel being very, you know, very detailed and descriptive. It says that not only did he hit him in the forehead with the stone, but the stone actually embedded in his forehead. It stayed there. And what happened to Goliath in that moment? To the shock of everyone who's there, Goliath falls face first before David. Where have we seen that before? I think Samuel, 1 Samuel 5, where they had taken the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in the temple of Dagon. What happened to Dagon? He would fall face first before the Ark of the Covenant. And here is great Goliath, who God's people feared, fell face first before God's champion. Oh, and and the end of the story we know is that eventually Saul's like, I mean, people go crazy. They chase the Philistines and they run. Why? Because the Philistines are like, "Uh uh-oh, Goliath said that if we lose, we gotta be their servants. We're out of here. Some of them stayed behind and they were caught Israel was emboldened finally. They saw. They never believed, but now they saw, so they do believe. And eventually David, he goes, right, right before that, he hits Goliath. He goes up to him. He takes his sword. He cuts his head off. Everything he said he would do, he did. They attack the Philistines, and eventually when it's all said and done, everyone's asking, who is this kid? Saul is asking, who is this kid? Bring him. Whose son are you? Oh, I'm the son of Jesse, the, the Bethlehemite. Maybe he said afterwards, I'm the guy who's been playing your harp for a while. Who are you? 
who are you, you unassuming young man who just saved God's people, who made the great Goliath fall on his face before the armies of the living God? Who are you? Uh, you know, they say the same about Jesus. Who, who is this Jesus? Oh, he is the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He is the son of God who has come to seek and save that, that, that which was lost. He has come to save his people from their sins. And who came to defeat as the, the statue of Dagon fell before the Ark of the Covenant, as Goliath fell before David. Now all principalities, hell, death, Satan, demons, all fall before the King of kings and Lord of lords, the rightful king, the rightful champion that God has brought upon to be once and for all the deliverer of his people of whom we get to enjoy relationship with because of his goodness and kindness and grace. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the only one who can save you. That's who he is. And he's the only one who will judge you. That's who he is. And he's the only one that you need to look to as you die to yourself, acknowledge your sin, repent of them, and turn to him and be saved. I got four ideas I want you to take home. Four truths that we see from this text that I want us to take home with us and not forget. Number one is this. Human reasoning and strategies will save no one. Stop trying first to save yourself through your obedience and your works and nothing but filthy rags before the Lord. Stop trusting in your rationale, in your education, in your understanding of science and, and all the self-righteous things that you think are worthy enough to save yourself and to be right before God. None of that avails you nothing. Just like the armies of Israel with their a, a champion fake king with all the weapons at hand, none of their strength could have ever saved themselves. Human reasoning and strategies will save no one. Secondly, there, there's only one all-sufficient savior his name is Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you one day understood your sin and understood your offense against the holy God and understood that your works always fell short of the glory of God and that you were un unable to make peace with God according to your righteousness, then I want you to know that not only is Jesus enough to save you, he's sufficient enough to keep you in his hand and guarantee your eternity. So in those temptations where you're like, I wonder if God loves me. How can God love me? How can God save me when I've done this and I've been here and I've done that? You need to understand what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. When the Lord rescues you from your sin, he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit, and in your worst days, 
He is pleased with you because he's pleased with his son in whom you're hidden. That's not a license to live however you want. That's not a, a, a blank assigned check for you to fill out and do it. Of course not. Because Christians live with a desire because of the spirit of God to live in obedience to him. But you could lift your countenance up because you are loved, greatly loved by the Savior. The one who is all sufficient for you. You need to look nowhere else in those moments of weakness, go back to the Savior, the one who has promised, and the one who's guaranteed. Third, God's Spirit dwells in those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Oh, this is where there's this secondary application. For Samuel, it's not primary about, and especially this chapter in particular, it's not us being David. It is David being a type of Christ and Messiah. He is the champion that we need who has the spirit of God. But on this side of the cross, the new work of the spirit, because now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, those who have trusted in him, we have the spirit of God in us, the spirit of Christ in us that has transformed us and is sanctifying us. Then he has empowered us to be, to be preachers, proclaimers of his word. To live a life of obedience. To live a godly life. To not trust in our works, but to trust in his spirit. For us to also affirm, as David affirmed, that salvation comes from the Lord. And I can live in light of that. I can live with boldness in my life. I can live with trust. I can rest in the middle of the storms. Because his spirit lives in me, reminding me that I have this champion who has rescued me and now is living and abiding in me and is at work through me to make his glory known. Know that. God's spirit dwells in those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So live like it in his strength and in his power. And lastly, those who trust in Christ by faith should live for his glory and not their own. Live, Christian, for God's glory and not your own. What does that mean? If you say you're truly a Christian, then adjust every area of your life to glorify God. If you say you are a believer and you're shacking up with your girl, repent of that, stop doing it, and live in your singleness for the glory of God until you marry that girl. If you're cheating in your taxes, stop cheating in your taxes. Pay what you owe. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And live in that area for the glory of Christ. If your family life is, is dysfunctional, your family is falling apart, your siblings, your friends, your cousins, families are always struggling. Well, live for the glory of God in being that person who's a peacemaker and who brings the gospel of Jesus Christ with grace. Forgive those who have offended you and serve them in radical ways, in ways that you would never do before because in doing so, you are bringing glory to God. Leverage every aspect of your life as a steward of God's grace 
as one who will give an account before the Lord. I gave you everything. I gave you Christ. I gave you salvation and eternity. It's yours. A Christian should never live. Okay. Here I live for Jesus, and here I live for me. No. Live for his glory in all areas of life, wherever your life exists, in every sphere. Live to glorify Christ. Because ultimately, that is what God deserves, and that is what he's after. And we, the church, have the great privilege of making him known to this dying world. So if you are a believer here, Amen. Live for Jesus. If you are not a believer, repent of your sin. Consider your ways and find. I pray that God strips you of all, of all, of every earthly means by which you think you could save yourself. I even pray that you can't sleep tonight if you leave here wrestling, you know, saying that pastor's crazy. I, I could look. My obedience is enough for me. And I hope you can't sleep tonight considering your ways before a holy God that you would repent and that God would do that incredible work in your heart because there is no other, only Christ.